large crowd. My name is Ira Silverbird. I'm the co-chair of the Lesbian and Gay Committee at Penn. Um, I co-chair the committee with Dorothy Allison. And on behalf of the committee and Penn and the new school, I want to thank you all for coming out. Tonight's program is devoted to literature. <laughs> what did I miss? Oh, right. <clears throat> I didn't plan that, obviously. Tonight's program is devoted to literature, letters, and lore by and about lesbians and gay men who were writing prior to the Stonewall Uprising of 1969. We specifically chose to look at contemporary pre-Stonewall work to counter the presumption that gay culture began in 1969. By asking our readers to focus on letters and memoir, we hope to present a small cross-section of history which is informative, irreverent, dishy, and ultimately queer. I hope that the work that is presented this evening will bring some of you back to the books and writers which sometimes get overlooked in the burgeoning field of contemporary gay and lesbian publishing. For those of you who expected Martin Duberman to be participating this evening, uh, I'm afraid we mistakenly announced him and he'd already had another commitment to another event, so he won't be reading tonight. Introducing tonight's readers is one of the most respected new voices in contemporary American letters. He's the winner of fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts, the Guggenheim Foundation, and the author of two works of fiction, the most recent of which is A Home at the End of the World. Um, to present tonight's readers, Michael Cunningham. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> I'd like to open the program by reading an excerpt from a letter written by Emerson in 1855 to Walt Whitman, the queer father of us all, and who was then an utterly unknown poet. Emerson wrote, <clears throat> I am not blind to the worth of the wonderful gift of leaves of grass. I find it the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom that America has yet contributed. I am very happy in reading it, as great power makes us happy. It meets the demand I am always making of what seemed the sterile and stingy nature, as if too much handiwork or too much lymph in the temperament were making our Western wits fat and mean. I give you joy of your free and brave thought. I have great joy in it. I find incomparable things said incomparably well, as they must be. I find the courage of treatment which so delights us and which large perception only can inspire. I greet you at the beginning of a great career. Now, Whitman was very pleased by the letter and immediately had it published in the New York Tribune. <laughs> Emerson first heard that his letter had been used for advertising purposes when a friend happened to mention seeing it. And Emerson's response, as uh, recounted by his friend Frank Bellew, was, in the New York Tribune? No, no, impossible. He cannot have published it. Dear, dear, that was very wrong, very wrong indeed. That was merely a private letter of congratulation. About a year later, another friend of Emerson's was visiting him when Emerson received a copy of Leaves of Grass. His friend Josiah Quincy wrote, Mr. Emerson came into his study at Concord where I was sitting, bearing in his hand a book which he had just received. This was the new edition of Whitman's book with the words, I greet you at the beginning of a great career, R.W. Emerson, printed in gold letters upon the cover. 
I noted the incident because at no other time had I seen a cloud of dissatisfaction darken that serene countenance. (laughs) Well, I'm here to report that almost 140 years later, the blurb Emerson never intended for public eyes is still to be seen on copies of Leaves of Grass. (laughs) You know, because even the greatest writers can occasionally, very occasionally, be the tiniest bit opportunistic (laughs) or deceitful or envious, or maybe even just a little bit vicious, Penn is pleased to present an evening of literary gossip and romance, (laughs) or a dish of the dead. (laughs) Tonight, we've asked seven of the fiercest living lesbian and gay writers to exhume a few passions, scandals, and complaints from the unquiet ground in which our foremothers and forefathers lie. First, I'd like to present Blanche McCrary Boyd. Blanche has written three novels in a book of personal essays, The Redneck Way of Knowledge. Her most recent novel, The Revolution of Little Girls, published by Knopf in 1991, was co-winner of the Lambda Award for Lesbian Fiction and winner of the Pharaoh Grumley Award. She received a Guggenheim Fellowship in 1993. Her new novel, Terminal Velocity, will be published by Knopf in 1995. Blanche McCrary Boyd. I was joking before that I thought I would get up here and say, hi, I'm Blanche and I'm an alcoholic. Um, (laughs) And, of course, I'm not going to read letters or memoirs. Um, Carson McCullers had a a tremendous impact on me before I knew that I was gay. And I got interested in trying to figure out how to understand that. And... uh, I looked, there's a famous story about McCullers following Catherine Ann Porter all around Yaddo and actually lying across the, um, the, the, in front of her door and begging her to come out. And then it got to be dinner time, and the woman running Yaddo, you showed up for dinner. So uh, Porter opened the door and stepped over McCullers and went to dinner. <laughs> and um, in the biography of uh, Carson McCullers that uh, Virginia Carr wrote, there's a, a, a Porter's, one of Porter's five husbands was uh, Albert Erskine, and he's the one who was surprised to find out she was 50 on their wedding day. He was, I think, 28. And um, he had given Porter some reason to think that McCullers might be a lesbian. This was how. He, he, when he read The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which was published when, when uh, McCullers was 22 years old, I believe, um, Porter had liked it a lot, but Erskine declared upon finishing the book, Catherine Ann, that woman is a lesbian. Porter was very indignant about this and said, you know, what makes you think that? You know, and he said, I can tell from the author's mind in that novel and by what she makes her characters do and say. Well, I think that I had the same response to the book, even though I wouldn't have been as articulate about it at the time. <laughs> Um, so what I want to do is read you a passage from The Heart is a Lonely Hunter that I think tipped off Mr. Erskine. 
couple of passages from a scene, the first time that we see the uh, female character, Mick Kelly, who is sort of like a Frankie and a member of the wedding. Um, she's uh, um, going to the, she's babysitting, but she's going to this new house that's being built in the neighborhood um, where the, the kids all break in and hang out. Um, so she's climbed up onto the roof. She felt the soles of her tennis shoes slipping and eased herself down so that she straddled the peak of the roof. She was by herself. No one was around, and it was quiet, and she could think for a while. She took from the pocket of her shorts the package of cigarettes she had bought the night before. That's probably a hint. She breathed in the smoke slowly. The cigarette gave her a drunk feeling so that her head seemed heavy and loose on her shoulders, but she had to finish it. M.K. That was what she would have written on everything when she was 17 years old and very famous. She would ride back home in a red and white Packard automobile with her initials on the doors. She would have M.K. written in red on her handkerchiefs and underclothes. Maybe she would be a great inventor. She would invent little tiny radios the size of a green pea that people could carry around and stick in their ears. Also, flying machines people could fasten on their backs like knapsacks and go zipping all over the world. After that, she would be the first one to make a large tunnel through the world to China and people could go down in big balloons. Those were the thing, first things she would invent. Those were already planned. When Mick had, half finished the, had finished half of the cigarette, she smashed it dead and flipped the butt down the slant of the roof. Then she leaned forward so that her head rested on her arms and began to hum to herself. It was a funny thing, but nearly all the time there was some kind of piano music or other music going on in the back of her mind. No matter what she was doing or thinking, it was nearly always there. Miss Brown, who boarded with them, had a radio in her room, and all last winter she would sit on the steps every Sunday afternoon and listen in on the programs. Those were probably classical pieces, but they were the ones that she remembered best. There was one special fellow's music that made her heart shrink up every time she heard it. Sometimes this fellow's music was like little colored pieces of crystal candy, and other times it was the softest, saddest thing she had ever imagined about. Well, then the kids that she's babysitting interrupt her, and she climbs down off the roof and goes into the house itself. Last month, they had put a sign out in front saying that no children were allowed on this lot. A gang of kids had been scuffling around inside the rooms one night, and a girl who couldn't see in the dark had run into a room that hadn't been floored and fallen through and broken her leg. She was still at the hospital in a plaster parish cast. Also, another time, some tough boys wee-weed all over one of the walls and wrote some pretty bad words. But no matter how many keep-out signs were put up, they couldn't run kids away until the house had been painted and finished and the people had moved in. The room smelled of new wood, and when she walked, the soles of her tennis shoes made a flopping sound that echoed all through the house. The air was hot and quiet. She stood still in the middle of the front room for a while, and then she suddenly thought of something. She fished in her pocket and brought out two stubs of chalk, one green and the other red. Mick drew the big block letters very slowly. At the top, she wrote Edison, and under that, she drew the names of Dick Tracy and Mussolini. Then in each corner with the largest letters of all, made with green and outlined in red, she wrote her initials, M.K. When that was done, she crossed over to the opposite wall and wrote a very bad word, pussy. And beneath, beneath that, she put her initials, too. <laughs> she stood in the middle of the empty room and stared at what she had done. The chalk was still in her hands, and she did not feel really satisfied. 
She was trying to think of the name of that fellow who had written this music she heard over the radio last winter. She had asked a girl at school who owned a piano and took music lessons about him, and the girl asked her teacher. It seemed this fellow was just a kid who had lived in some country in Europe a good while ago. But even if he was just a young kid, he had made up all these beautiful pieces on the, of the piano and for the violin and for a band or orchestra, too. In her mind, she could remember about six different tunes from the pieces of his that she had heard. A few of them were kind of quick and tinkling, but another was like that smell in the springtime after a rain. But they all made her somehow sad and excited at the same time. She hummed one of the tunes, and after a while, in the hot, empty house by herself, she felt the tears come in her eyes. Her throat got tight and rough, and she couldn't sing any more. Quickly, she wrote the fellow's name at the very top of the list, Mozart, and it's spelled M-O-T-S-A-R-T. Now, there's a, late, a scene a little bit later where um, Mick has given a party, and you can kind of feel the mechanics of the scene, that it's like supposed to be she's still a kid, but she's an adolescent. She jumps off of something. If she'd had her tennis shoes on, she would have been fine, but she jumps into this ditch in pumps and knocks herself out. And, um, and she goes to the door screaming, the party is over, the party is over. Um, and she goes out by herself again that night. In the quiet, secret night, she was by herself again. It was not late. Yellow squares of light showed in the windows of the houses along the streets. She walked slow, with her hands in her pockets and her head to one side. For a long time, she walked without noticing the direction. Then the houses were far apart from each other, and there were yards with big trees in, the, in them and black shrubbery. She looked around and saw that she was near this house where she had gone so many times in the summer. Her feet had just taken her here without knowing. When she came to the house, she waited to be sure no person could see. Then she went through the side yard. The radio was on as usual. For a second, she stood by the window and watched the people inside. The bald-headed man and the gray-haired lady were playing cards at a table. Mick sat on the ground. This was a very fine and secret place. Close around her were thick cedars that she was completely, so that she was completely hidden by herself. The radio was no good tonight. Somebody sang popular songs that all ended the same way. It was like she was empty. She reached in her pockets and felt around with her fingers. There were raisins and a buckeye and a string of beads, one cigarette with matches. She lighted the cigarette and put her arms around her knees. It was like she was so empty there wasn't even a feeling or thought in her. One program came on after another, and all of them were punk. She didn't especially care. She smoked and picked a little bunch of grass blades. After a while, a new announcer started talking. He mentioned Beethoven. She had read in the library about that musician. His name was pronounced with an A and spelled with a double E. He was a German fellow, like Mozart. When he was living, he spoke in a foreign language and lived in a foreign place, like she wanted to do. The announcer said they were going to play his third symphony. She only halfway listened because she wanted to walk some more and she didn't care much what they played. Then the music started. Mick raised her head and her fist went up to her throat. How did it come? For a minute, the opening balanced from one side to the other, like a walk or march, like God strutting in the night. The outside of her was suddenly froze, and only that first part of the music was hot inside her heart. She could not even hear what sounded after, but she sat there waiting and froze with her fists tight. After a while, the music came again, harder and loud. It didn't have anything to do with God. This was her, Mick Kelly, 
walking in the daytime and by herself at night, in the hot sun and in the dark with all the plans and feelings. This music was her, the real plain her. She could not listen good enough to hear it all. The music boiled inside her, which, to hang on to certain wonderful parts and think them over so that later she would not forget, or should she let go and listen to each part that came without thinking or trying to remember? Golly, the whole world was this music, and she could not listen hard enough. Then at last the opening music came again, with all the different instruments bunched together for each note, like a hard, tight fist that socked at her heart, and the first part was over. This music did not take a long or a short time. It did not have anything to do with time at all. She sat with her arms held tight around her legs, biting her salty knee very hard. It might have been five minutes she listened or half the night. The second part was black-colored, a slow march, not sad, but like the whole world was dead and black and there was no use thinking back how it was before. One of those horn kind of instruments played a sad silver tune. Then the music rose up angry and with excitement underneath, and finally the black march again. But maybe the last part of the symphony was the music she loved the best, glad and like the greatest people in the world running and springing up in a hard, free way. Wonderful music like this was the worst hurt there could be. The whole world was this symphony, and there was not enough of her to listen. It was over, and she sat very stiff with her arms around her knees. Another program came on the radio, and she put her fingers in her ears. The music left only this bad hurt in her and a blankness. She could not remember any of the symphony, not even the last few notes. She tried to remember, but no sound at all came to her. Now that it was over, there was only her heart like a rabbit and this terrible hurt. The radio and the lights in the house were turned off. The night was very dark. Suddenly, Mick began hitting her thigh with her fists. She pounded the same muscle with all her strength until tears came down her face. But she could not feel this hard enough. The rocks under the bush were sharp. She grabbed a handful of them and began scraping them up and down on the same spot until her hand was bloody. Then she fell back to the ground and lay looking up at the night. With the fiery hurt in her legs, she felt better. She was limp on the wet grass, and after a while her breath came slow and easy again. Why hadn't the explorers known by looking at the sky that the world was round? The sky was curved, like the inside of a huge glass ball, very dark blue with the sprinkles of bright stars. The night was quiet. There was the smell of warm cedars. She was not trying to think the music at all when it came back to her. The first part happened in her mind just as it had been played. She listened in a quiet, slow way and thought the notes out like a problem in geometry so she would remember. She could see the shapes of the sounds very clear, and she would not forget them. Now she felt good. She whispered some words out loud, Lord, forgiveth me, for I knoweth not what I do. Why did she think of that? Everybody in the past few years knew there wasn't any real God. When she thought of what she used to imagine was God, she could only see Mr. Singer, that's the mute man who lives in her house, see Mr. Singer with a long white sheet around him. God was silent. Maybe that was why she was reminded. She said the words again, Lord, forgiveth me, for I knoweth not what I do. This part of the music was beautiful and clear. Once again, she listened to the opening part. Then the notes grew slower and soft, and it was like she was sinking down slowly into the dark ground. And I think I'll stop there.
<clears throat> Hilton Alves is a frequent contributor to The New Yorker and Grand Street Magazines. He is completing a book, I hope he's completing a book, of essays for Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Hilton. sort of uncanny ability to make me laugh hysterically um, whenever I read it to myself, so God knows what's going to happen here. Um, it's Several things happen in the letter. Uh, without directly referring to Elizabeth Hardwick's remark that um, gossips prefer to be known as people who indulge in character analysis, um, <laughs> This letter, <coughs> excuse me, this letter uh, by Jane Bowles to two women friends, um, Catherine Hamill and Natasha von Hoffelschmann, uh, who were independent ladies who worked um, on the staff of Fortune magazine for many years. Um, often they threatened to give Jane a subscription to standard statistics. Um, she had no interest in their work. Um, the, letter is being, the letter is being written um, shortly after they've left her in Morocco, um, after, after they've taken this journey together to Morocco from New York where her play in the summer house had just closed. The letter was written in 1954. Darling Natasha and Catherine, I never stop thinking about you, but too much has happened. Please forgive me if this is not an amusing letter. I think I had better simply write you a gross factual resume of what has happened. Then, if I have any sense at all, I shall keep notes. Because what is happening is interesting and funny in itself. I'm a fool to have lost two whole months of it. I have no memory only a subconscious memory, which I am afraid translates everything into something else, and so I shall have to take notes. I have a very pretty leather book for that purpose. The day you left, I was terribly, terribly sad. I went down that long street, way down in, and landed in a room filled with 18 women and a dozen or two little babies wearing knitted capes and hoods. One lady had on a peach satin evening dress and over it the jacket of a man's business suit a Spanish business suit. I had been searching for Charifa. Um, it's a little footnote. Charifa is a woman that she's very interested in who um, she pursues throughout these letters. Oh, the letters are collected in a book that's out of print now called Out in the World. Um, it's just for you. Um, I had been searching for Charifa, and having been to three houses all belonging to her family, I finally landed there. I thought I was in a bordello. The room was very plush, filled with hideous blue and white chenille cushions made in Manchester, England. <laughs> Tarifa wore a blue, pale blue sateen skirt down to the ground and a grayish Spanish, and a grayish Spanish sweater, a kind of school sweater, but not sporty. 
She seemed to be constantly flirting with a woman in a blue caftan, our hostess. Finally, she sat next to her and encircled her waist. Charifa looked like a child. The woman weighed about 160 pounds and was loaded with rouge and eye makeup. Now I know her, an al alcoholic named Fat Zora, <clears throat> and one of two wives. She is married to a kind of criminal who I believe knifed his own brother over a card game and spent five years in jail. The, the other wife lives in a different house and does all the childbearing. <laughs> Fat Zora is, is barren. There was one pale-looking girl, very light green, who I thought was surely the richest and the most distinguished of the lot. Sure, she wore a wonderful embroidered caftan, a rich spinach, spinach green with a leaf design. Her face was rather sour, thin, compressed lips, and a long, mean-looking nose. I was sad while they, while they played their drums and did their lewd belly dances because I thought, my God, if only you had stayed a day longer. But of course, if you had, Perhaps they wouldn't have asked you in. They're so leery of strangers. In any case, at the end of the afternoon, Sharifa took me to a doorway and into the blue court courtyard where two boring pigeons were squatting and asked me whether or not I was going to live in my house. The drums were still beating and I had sticky cakes in my hand, those I couldn't eat. I had stuffed down as many as I could. I loathed them. <clears throat> But I was really too sad because you had left to get down very many. I said I was going to live in my house, but not before I found a maid. She told me to wait a minute, and a, late, and a minute later she came out with a distinguished, pale-looking, green one. Here's your maid, she said, a very poor girl. Anyway, a month and a half later she became my maid. I call her Sour Pickle, and she is... <laughs> And she has stolen roughly about 1,400 pesitas from me. I told C about it. She advised me not to keep any money in the house. She is a wonderful maid, an excellent cook, and sleeps in. Um, incidentally, Jane was sort of this huge figure to a lot of um, fags that would come through North Africa for obvious reasons. And one of the re ways in which she met these men was through her husband, Paul, who was a fag. Paul, Paul had typhoid in the hotel, and that was a frightening mess for two weeks. We were both about to move into our houses. He had found one on a street called City Buknantal, overlooking the sea, and I was coming here. Then he had typhoid, and then Tennessee came for t two whole weeks. I moved in here while Paul was still in the hotel. For a while, Ahmed and I were living together while Paul lingered on in that hotel in a weaker state. He is all right now. Ahmed stayed here during the month of Ramadan, the month when they eat at night, and I was with him during the two weeks. Not very interesting, except that every night I woke up choking with charcoal smoke, and then he would insist that I eat with him, liver or steak or whatever the hell it was. At first I minded terribly. Then I began to expect it, and one night he didn't buy really enough for the two of us, and I was grieved. Meanwhile, in the daytime, I was in the hotel preparing special food for Paul to bring his appetite back. There were always four or five of us cooking at once in the long, narrow hotel kitchen, the only room that looked out on the sea. Meeting Tennessee and Frankie for dinner was complicated, too. They were at the Rembrandt. Synchronizing took up most of the time. We were all in different places. One day before Ramadan and before Paul had paratyphoid, I went to the market and sat in the gloom about 
Indochina and the Moroccan situation and every other thing in the world that was a situation outside my own. Soon I cheered up a little. <clears throat> I, was in the, I was in the part where Tidham sits in among the coal and the mules and the chickens. Two little boy musicians came by. I gave them money and Tidham ordered songs. Soon we had a big crowd around us, one of those Marrakesh circles. Everybody stopped working. Working? And we had one, one half hour of music, myself and everybody else, in that part of the market. And people gathered from round about, just like Tiflis. Tidham was in good spirits. She told me that Chirifa had a girlfriend who was fat and white. I recognized Fat Zora, though I shall never know whether I put the fat white picture in her mind or not. I might have said, is she fat and white? I don't know. <laughs> And then she asked me if I wouldn't drive her to Sidi Minari, one of the sacred groves around here where Sidi Minari, a saint, is buried. They like to visit as many saints as possible, of course, because it gives them extra gold stars for heaven. I thought, Natasha and Catherine will be angry. They told me to stick to Charifa, but then they don't know about Fat Zora. After saying this in my head, I felt free to offer Tidham a trip to the grove without making you angry. Of course, it turned out that she wanted to take not only one, but two neighbors and their children. We were to leave at 8.30 a.m., she insisted. The next day, when I got to Tidham's house on the Marshan with Temsamani, nearly an hour late, Tidham came to the door in a gray bathrobe. I was very surprised. Underneath, she was dressed in a long zigdun, and under that, she wore other things. I can't describe a zigdun, but it is quite enough to wear without adding a bathrobe. <laughs> but when they wear our night clothes, they wear them over or under their own, which are simply like, simply the underpeelings or first three layers of their day clothes, like tiefless. She, she yanked me into the, her house, tickled my palm, shouted to her neighbor, asleep on the other side of a thin curtain, and in general, half-pranced around the room. She dressed me up in a hideous half-Arab, half-Spanish cotton dress, which came to my ankles and, and had no shape at all. <clears throat> Just a little round neck, she belted it and said, now go back to the hotel and show your husband how pretty you look. I said I would some other day, and what about our trip to the saint's tomb? She said, yes, yes, but she had to go and fetch the two other women who both lived in other parts of town. I said, would they be ready? And she said something like, baka shue, which means just nothing. Finally, I arranged to come back for her at three. Rather infuriated because I had gotten Temsamani up at the crack, but I was not surprised, nor was he. Tidum took me to her gate. If you're not here at three, she said in a sudden anger, I shall walk to the grove myself on my own legs, five hours roughly. We went back at three, and the laundry bags were ready, and the children, and Tidham. We are going to two saints, Tidham said, first City Minari, and then we will stop at the other saints on the way back. He's buried on the edge of town, and we've got to take the children to him and cut their throats because they've got whooping cough. <laughs> she poked one of the laundry bundles who showed me a knife. I was getting rather nervous because, of Paul, because Paul, of course, was expecting us back roughly around seven, and I know how long these things can take. <laughs> we drove along the awful road, the one that frightened you, toward the grove, only we went on and on, much further out, and the road began to bother me a little after a while. You would have hated it. The knife, of course, served for the symbolic cutting of the children's throats, though at first I had thought they were going to draw some blood, if not a great deal. I didn't think they were actually going to kill the children or I wouldn't have taken them on the ride. 
We reach, we reach the sacred grove, which is not far from the lighthouse one can see coming into the harbor. Unfortunately, they have built some ugly restaurants around and about the lighthouse and not far from the sacred grove, so that sedans are now constantly passing on the highway. The grove itself is very beautiful, and if one goes far enough inside it, far away from the road, one does not see the cars passing. We didn't penetrate very far into the grove because being a Christian, oi, I can't get to the vicinity of the saint's tomb. Samson spread the terraplin on the ground and the endless tea equipment they had brought with them, and they went off to the saint. He said, I shall make a fire, and when they come back, the water will be boiling. They came back, God knows when, the water was boiling. We had used up a lot of dead olive branches. They sat down and lowered their veils so that they hung under their chins like ugly bibs. They had brought an excellent sponge cake, as usual, something sweet. I thought, romance here is impossible. Tidham's neighbors were ugly, one in particular. Like a turtle, Tamsamani said. She, le- she kept looking down into her lap. Tatum, the captain of the group, said to the turtle, Look at the world, look at the world. I am looking at the world, the other woman said, but she kept looking down into her lap. They cut up all the sponge cake. I said, Stop, leave it, we'll never eat it all. Tamsamani said, I'm going to roller skate. He went off, and we could see him through the trees. After a while, the conversation stopped. Even Tatum was at a loss. There was a little excitement when they spotted the woman who takes care of the toilets under the grain market, seated not far off with a group somewhat larger than ours, but nothing else happened. I went to look for Temsamani on the highway. He had roller skated out of sight. I felt that all my pursuits here were hopeless. I looked back over my shoulder into the grove. Tidum was swinging upside down from an olive tree. Her knees hooked over a branch, and she is, after all, 45 and veiled and a miser. There is more to this day, but I see now that I have done exactly what I did not want to do. See, I told you it was going to start. <laughs> I have gone into great detail about one incident which is probably of no interest. I always let Fatima, sour pickle, decide what we are to eat. It is also terribly simple, all in one dish, either lamb with olives or with raisins and onions or chicken with the same or ground meat on skewers or beef or lamb. You, you remember how wonderful they taste or a fried potato omelet with onions, or boiled noodles with butter, and always lots of black bread and wine at five pesitas a quart. Excellent. I've had guests once, Tennessee in fact. White beans in oil, with salt pork like the ones I cooked for you. Lots of salad, cucumber, tomato, and onion all chopped up almost daily. Fresh figs, bananas, cherries, whatever is in season. Wonderful bowls of Turkish coffee in the morning with piles of toast soaked in butter. At noon we eat very little. I go, over to <clears throat> I go over to Paul's for lunch, except that he never eats until 3.30, sometimes 4. I get up at 7, and by then I am so hungry I don't even care, but I like seeing him. We eat soup and bread and butter, and cheese and tuna fish. For me, tuna fish is the main diet. I love this life, and I'm terrified of the day when my money runs out. Please write, I shall worry now about this messy letter. All my love, Jane. There's this really um, sort of painful side to all of this. There's this Elizabeth Bishop letter. I don't, I don't know if you want to hear it now, if you're not in the mood after that. What, what do you think? Okay. Um, it's, very, it's relatively short. Um, it's a letter that she wrote to a Brazilian friend um, 
after the death of her lover 15 years, Lota, um, and it, it pretty much explains what happened <clears throat> to Maria Usser. I was awfully touched. In fact, I cried my eyes out later, something I hadn't done before, by your telephone call and offer of coming here to New York. New York. Lota was determined to come, apparently, even against everyone's advice, and even if I knew from her letters that although she was trying very hard, she still was far from well. I still couldn't write her no. And in a way, I, I'm glad I didn't, because she did, not, she did not want to be away. She wanted to be with me, at least. And that's about the only consolation I have so far. I don't think she had consciously planned this because she brought so many things, 12 kilo bags of coffee, etc. We were together a few hours, really. She was exhausted and sick and very depressed. I think perhaps she felt some miracle would take place and she'd feel better the minute she got to New York. I'll really never know, and of course can't help blaming myself. I tried to cheer her up, had lots of lovely plans for her, promised we'd take an apartment in Venice next spring for a month or so, everything I could think of, but still feel I must have let her down badly somehow or other. We had no quarrel. Everything was peaceful and affectionate, <clears throat> honestly. You must believe that. Went to bed early, and of course I feel if only I hadn't been so tired and slept so hard, I might have saved her. The minute I found her, about 6.30 a.m., I heard her staggering down the stairs from the kitchen here, already almost unconscious. I got Dr. Bauman. She got, she got Harold Leeds and Wheaton Galantine from across the street and an ambulance and policemen, etc., and I really think we had her over at St. Vincent's, just two blocks away, thank God, within half an hour. She was put in the brand new wing, supposedly the very best equipped in the country for this kind of thing. Dr. B kept in touch with the doctors at that hospital and called me every day, sometimes twice. For a few days there were signs of improvement, and I hoped and hoped, but her heart finally just stopped, just a week after she went into the hospital. I never saw her again, except to identify her. I tried to find out what she had taken and how many, and finally she, Lota, said 10, the last word she said before going into a coma. Her blood test showed a lot of Valium. That's all I know so far, all I may ever know. If she had been younger or in better health, she might have pulled through. But Dr. Amy says she might have had brain damage or paralysis, and you know how Lota would have not endured that. She was always impatient, my darling Loda, and finally, too impatient to live, I suppose. Well, I have heard twice from Rio and a good many wires, of course, talked to Rashina and Magu on that Monday night, already a few clippings from the Rio papers. I'm waiting for the mailman now and dreading what he'll bring today. He'll, her, cough, her coffin got to Rio Friday a.m. Stella said many friends were going to the airport because she always liked people to meet her and the funeral was Friday afternoon. I asked to have her put in the tomb with her father. How Loda would have hated all this fuss, I know, but I wanted to do it that way, for my own sake, but also for her family, of course. The saddest thing for me now is that I have never heard a word from Mary or Loda's doctor as far as that goes, but to hell with him. I know Mary must be suffering horribly, and I hope she would at last forgive me, but probably never will. She never understood me at all, anyway. 
and now I am horribly afraid that she is blaming me, thinks I didn't take good care of Lota, etc. I'm telling you because it is making me so terribly unhappy. I have to tell someone who knows us. I am very dumb about some things. This last year, Lota told me Mary never had, had liked me. And since I did and do like her, even if I got drunk and was frightfully rude that one time, after 15 years of mutual forbearance and politeness, however, this is hard for me to understand. Mary is so intensely maternal. You know she used to drive all the way to Rio just to pack Lotus bags for her when we went traveling. She could never understand. I know that although my feelings were very different, Lotus and I were extremely happy together in our own different ways. In fact, I had 12 or 13 of the happiest of my years of my life, and that is more than most people ever have, I think. I cursed myself for going to Seattle too, of course, but at the time, Lota did not object. In fact, went with me to have new clothes made and so on. It was only later, when she began to get sick, before I got back, I think, that she began to think of my leaving as just one more betrayal. <clears throat> I never meant it that way, God knows, and was terribly homesick and almost came home in midterm, but she would never really believe any of this. I also bored total strangers with the stories of the park and photographs, and poor Lota finally thought I wasn't interested in it or proud of her. However, those ideas seems to have, seem to have cleared up from her letters, and she certainly said nothing about any of her old obsessions in the one afternoon in New York we had together. Forgive me for running on so. She had so many friends here, you know, and everyone has been as kind as possible and done all they could. I still can't believe it's true, that's all, and can't imagine what I'm going to do with my life now. Thank you. Wayne Kestenbaum is Associate Professor of English at Yale. He's published two books of poetry and a critical study, Double Talk, The Erotics of Male Literary Collaboration. His most recent book is The Queen's Throat, Opera, Homosexuality, and the Mystery of Desire, published by Poseidon. He's going to read from Frank O'Hara. I'm really excited because um, Maureen O'Hara, Frank O'Hara's sister, gave me a whole cache of Frank's unpublished letters for me to choose from to read tonight. Um, and I can't read them all. I can, in fact, only read one. But there's one line from a letter I don't have time to read that's too funny, I think, um, not to share with you. Um, I don't know whom Frank O'Hara is writing to in this letter, but he's uh, he's talking about a conversation with his a landlady, um, and the lady the landlady uh, refers to a single Hollywood bed, and Frank says in this letter, "What I asked the lady is so Hollywood about a single bed." Which <laughs> I think is a very important quotation. Um, Frank O'Hara was born on, or said he was born, or believed he was born on June 27th, and he would have been, I think, if my math is correct, 68 in a few days. Um, for me, at least, personally, more than many other pre-Stonewall writers, Frank O'Hara seems to float oblivious of even the need for there to have been a Stonewall. Um, in other words, he seemed, in his own way, to catalyze it. 
um, or to speak in that time with a kind of insouciance and freedom and candor um, as if the closet didn't even exist. And that's what I think is so, one of the things that's so extraordinary about him. He hated nature. Um, <laughs> bless him for that. And he said very famously in Meditations in an Emergency, this is a quote from the prose poem, However, I have never clogged myself with the praises of pastoral life, nor with nostalgia for an innocent past of perverted acts in pastures. No. One need never leave the confines of New York to get all the greenery one wishes. I can't even enjoy a blade of grass unless I know there's a subway handy, or, <laughs> or a record store, or some other sign that people do not totally regret life. The letter that I've chosen to read, though, is f written from nature. Frank O'Hara in the country. It's uh, written on June 15th, 1956. Frank O'Hara would have been about 30 years old. And it's to James Schuyler. Dear Jimmy, I've been hoping for a letter from you, you scamp. But I trust you are spending your typing hours in inspiration's high dudgeon and have no time for finger exercises. And just so you won't think I've been a lazy bone since I came back to Cam on Charles, I'll tell you straight off that I have torn out my heart, stuck it with cloves, and again sent it off on a silver tray to the Duke de Berry, this time with my card turned down. I guess anyone with his essential nobility of temperament, not to say figure, knows perfectly well that the right kind of call paid at the right time will affect the resumption of a dangerous, if intermittent, liaison every time, especially with one of my high quality. It is heaven, what the hell. And I have a cute little purple bruise on my shoulder to show you, which has all the fragrance of an African violet. George thinks I'm acting fluttery, but you know I want my life to be beautiful no matter how much pain it takes. Rodney. <laughs> I don't know if that's his camp name for James Schuyler, but it's R-R-R-R-R-O-D-N-E-Y. Why Rodney? George says a deep hello to you. That's George Montgomery. It takes about three hours to get here, and you pass through Laconia, which was assembling a lot of motorcyclists for some event or other. They were often attended by demon girls and looked like extras from the wild one, with the exception of one fortunate sportsman who was featuring Harry Belafonte's double on his jump seat. There is a dirt road that leads to this house, which is under the brow of vast Mount Israel, and I do hope it's on their course of racing or whatever. The grass is waving as in country houses in Russia, I'm told. No ticks. Some gnats. This afternoon when we arrived, we went to a waterfall, which has a little shallow pool. There are all... ...and look down the waterfalls, very much like sitting in the last row of the balcony at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> I took a two-hour nap before dinner, during which I had a vague dream of Don conducting me in what strongly resembled the Rachmaninoff Third in an enormous hall. We were superb, I must say. In case you're ever in this neighborhood, there are a number of delightful place names you'll want to know. When you leave Laconia, the big town on Lake Winnipesaukee, you next come to Center Harbor. Then you take Bean Road to Sandwich, and out of Sandwich, you take Sandwich Notch Road, until you turn off on Mount Israel Road, which George lives on. We just drove to the Weirs, a kind of Palisades Park section of Laconia, where there were hundreds of motorcyclists arriving for the races. I cannot help believe, but believe that the wild one misrepresented these splendid creatures. 
They were pouring into town in their darling outfits on their cute, heavy machines. <laughs> the wild ones seemed to deal only with the Rococo element. <laughs> Here there were several very classic sickle operators, a far superior type, elegantly dressed in simple t-shirts and dungarees. Often they arrived two by two, as in the wedding at Monaco, and dressed alike, which gave an intimate, depressing solidity to the social aspect of the scene. We are nevertheless planning to go back tomorrow night and cash in our chips. George is singing Hawaiian songs with his guitar in the next room. We were both delighted to have discovered where the cyclists were headquartering, as you can well believe. I don't see why they can't have why they don't have a big sports event like this in New York, having the races go around Manhattan via the East and West Side highways. I imagine John Button would be wild for the atmosphere, which is a cross between Forty Second Street and Duval Street in Key West. Smell that honeysuckle. There only seem to be two bars though, and they only sell beer, which is a blessing, I guess. There is also an enormous ballroom, which looks like a barn, jutting out into the water. It was totally dark tonight. Maybe it's haunted by the memory of other races. These races are also quite expensive. 165 for Saturday, and two races on Sunday for 250 We kept imagining we saw Butch Melton. Don told me he believes in the absolute. Isn't that marvelous? I think I do, too. Do you? To get back to real life, Madame Verdurin has just turned Charlie against the Baron, and I'm so worried about the old boy. Didn't you adore the way the Queen of Naples stood up for him when she came back to get the fan she'd forgotten? We have just rubbed ourselves with anti-mosquito lotion and sewed to bed. See you in the morning. Dot, dot, dot. I forgot to tell you that in the living room there is a print by Ensign and Thayer, 12 Exchange Street, Buffalo, of a big-headed little creature standing by a sofa in a décolleté dress with a pink sash called Albert. Also, there is a privy in the barn, a two-seater, which the porcupines are fond of and have nibbled away one of the seats of, so it feels quite odd when you sit on it. And last night I had another dream in which a caravan of motorcyclists kept coming up the dirt road and stopping on the porch, and George and I kept serving them water out of little glasses the size of craft cheese jars by the dozen per person, and they kept asking us why we didn't have big glasses. And they went on their way as others rode up, and we would wish them luck in the races and promise we were coming, which we are not, at least not today, because we both feel too indolent. Today is not so hot as yesterday and quite breezy. This morning I woke up at five o'clock and killed mosquitoes for an hour and then went back to sleep. <laughs> I think Proust is ruining me since when, when, since when one is not actively reading him, one seems to be unconsciously scrutinizing one's own experiences and particularly one's motives, ugh, and finding them unworthy. <laughs> for example, it may be that where I acted like Marcel with Larry... I acted like Albertine with Bobby, and with Jane continued to act like the Prince de Guermant to her Oriane, unconsciously heightening my own vulgarity to make clear to others my admiration and appreciation of her superior sensibility, sensitivity, and wit, superior to my own, that is. This is an amusing and depressing game, and, I suppose, terribly naive. From all this, it is only too apparent what is occupying my mind these days while I make real life into a fantasy which bears little resemblance to the actual and largely fortuitous events which inspired it in the first place. All anyone has to do is smile, and I'm off on an elaborate trip 
accompanied solely by myself, as usual. Crash, there goes the front tire. And here I am in the middle of the Arizona desert, with no spare, out of gas, and hiking toward the nearest roadside lunch counter, where I will find the cast of petrified forest, waiting to begin the action when I ask for a cup of coffee. I just can't stop writing this letter. It's disgusting. I've spent most of the morning looking over 15-year-old lifes, which happen to be sitting around the house. Half the magazines have bullet holes through them, from target practice, I presume. There was an article you would have enjoyed on a musical Al Jolson got up for Chicago, Hold On to Your Hats, for which he hired Martha Ray, a young comedienne, and starred his ex-wife, Ruby Keeler. Unfortunately, Martha gets most of the footage. There's also one that has new starlets, Lana Turner, Linda Darnell, Doris Bowden, Helen Parrish, et al. Doris Bowden's ambition was to be better than Helen Hayes, and Linda Darnell is indicated as most beautiful and most talented dramatically, which I agree with, don't you? Poor darling, where is she? (laughs) They invoke her great movie, Dream Wife, too. There are also lots of maps of Russia because of the various invasions, which are quite fascinating. I always thought Kiev was the other way, towards Siberia. And Baku, what a surprise. We are going swimming in Squam Lake today to see what it's like, so I'll mail this letter on the way. There are heaps of lakes around here, and several of them look very much like Loon Lake, where poor Shelley Winters got it from Montgomery Clift. (laughs) And mountains all around them, the puddles of the gods. Best to Arthur and love, and write soon, Frank. Jacqueline Woodson has published a number of novels for young adults, including The Dear One and I Hadn't Meant to Tell You This. Her first novel for adults, Autobiography of a Family Photo, is forthcoming from Dutton in January of 1995. She's going to read from James Baldwin. Jackie. Um... It was really exciting to do this, to go up to the Schomburg and do all this research. Um, I did it today. <laughs> but there's a wealth of information up there, and I, I think I've um, uncovered, I won't say discovered, Jimmy's coming out. Um, but I'm actually going to start by reading some excerpts from letters to his brother David. David, my friend. July 29, 1964. The shit has certainly hit the fan. Talk about the fire, and next time will be worse. Dear David, am sweating out the devil finds work. Why is it that you always discover too late when the book is almost over and cannot be written again that you are absolutely the world's worst writer? Have no talent at all. I cannot imagine anybody ever reading this book either. Either it or I must leave this house. That means I'm scared shitless and about to turn it in. It's either very good or very bad. It's not like anything I've ever done before, and I just don't know. Um, 
And then he started, he wrote a friend of his, Dan Frank, um, Dan Fink, who had enlisted in the Army. And this is the first letter. Dear Dan, it was something of a shock to suddenly discover that you were so far away. I knew you were going to enlist, but never really thought about it at all and all of its ramifications. Anyway, I was glad to hear from you and should have answered sooner. How do you like the Army? I don't imagine you care for it too much. To enjoy Army life to its fullest, you must be a conformist, and you never have been that. Perhaps, though, the climate of Florida makes up for it. From where I'm sitting, everything is fine. I'm at Princeton, still writing. Not writing very well, but plugging away. I'm out of a job at the present time. I was fired from Bill Meade for not conforming to their conception of a good American laborer. The ostensible reason was that I took too much time for lunch, which was true. At the present time, I'm struggling to get back on my writing legs. All of a sudden, I seem to have, to have dried up. I'm getting really frightened. I hate to be through at 18. To add misery to misery, I'm suffering from your complaint. I'm in love. It would, be, it would be simple if I were simply in love, period. I happen to be in love with a Jewish girl, six years my senior, who has been married once and divorced. I'm telling you, kid, it hit me hard, and I'm frightened. I never felt like this about anyone before. Jessie, that's the girl, knows how I feel, and I know she cares a lot about me. But she feels the difference in our ages is too much to my disadvantage. If any one of us got hurt, she says, you would be the one hurt the most. Actually, her fear of hurting me and her uncertainty of her feelings towards me, I'm not sure that I'm really in love with you, she says, are the only obstacles. I'm sick with loneliness when I'm without her. I'm sick with love when I'm with her. What am I going to do? She's a wonderful kid. She's much younger than 24. She seems much younger than 24. She's the only girl I ever met whom I respect intellectually. She's got a brilliant mind, a brilliant personality. She's not in the least bit pretty and has enormous green eyes. I wish you could meet her. She's a swell kid. Anyway, take care of yourself and write me soon. Please write me soon. Please don't let's lose each other. And um, this letter has been written a lot of time later, and it takes place during the time that James Baldwin's father is dying, and he ends up having to leave Princeton to go home and take care of his family, which is a family of five children. And during the course of his father's illness, um, his mother discloses that she's pregnant again. Dear Dan, there are so many things I've wanted to say to you. I don't really know how to begin. So much has happened, so much that is painful, wonderful, stupid, wise, unimportant, but all important. I left Princeton in early June, brought back to the city by the combined pressures of a blacklist in New Jersey and a desperate family situation. Then he goes on to talk about it, about his father going um, into the hospital. I was just getting up the next morning when the telegram came announcing that my father had departed this earth. My mother had hysterics and was carried off to the hospital where she went into labor and had another girl born miraculously alive and healthy. I wondered about the city trying to figure out how to bury a body and feed a family on $25 flat. His relatives come in and help him bury him. Um, now it was over, and I thought there might be logically, they might logically follow a return to normalcy. I went back to work, but passed out the first day and had to go. 
I started a new job a few days later, but a funny thing had happened to me. The sight of an industrial building, the knowledge that I had to spend so many hours a day there, filled me with such a choking desire to scream. I was absolutely unable to hold on to a job. I fled from one job to the other, often without waiting to be paid, and soon stopped trying to work. I drifted from one place to another, could not stay home, could not stay in a movie, could not sleep. I spent most of my nights in various cafeterias and bars in the village, slept in the daytime, prowled again at night, had a brief, tasteless, tawdry love affair, borrowed money right and left, lost weight, stopped writing, went slightly mad. I was obsessed by a need to fill all of my time with lights, people, laughter. This lasted from August to the better part of November. I was given a jolt out of this when I inadvertently offended a good friend of mine, and he gave me the kind of tongue lashing I deserved. I didn't like it, but I needed it. I began to try to get myself together. I was damn lucky there was anything left over to get together. So now you have the salient facts pertaining to my silence. I have never been before been so completely lost and so completely lonely. I couldn't even write because I couldn't sit still that long. Do you know what I mean? Of late, I have been writing a good deal, though. Try, typing up, tossing off poetry. I am not in love with anyone now, thank God. I'm just very casually playing the feel and keeping my eyes open. There are so many things I want to say to you and cannot say until I see you. Dan, I have learned so much about living through so many mistakes. I am full to bursting with half-formed feelings, ideas, plans. There are so many things I want so many things I want. Do you understand me at all? Life is taking on an immensity, a depth I never knew it had before. All of us are so important and so tragically unimportant. Dan, life is an amazing and torturous thing. Do you suppose anyone will ever learn how to live? That greed, envy, murder, hatred will ever leave the earth? I have been wallowing in poetry lately, have rediscovered Shakespeare, have finally discovered Milton and Chaucer, read Milton's poem, if you haven't, you should, and have made the acquaintance of T.S. Eliot, who I have not, I believe, who, oh, I'm sorry, who has not, I believe, written anything more beautiful and profoundly moving than the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Search for it and read it, and if you cannot find it, I will send it to you. And with this, he, um, so I, my idea is that Jimmy's struggling with a couple of identity issues. And um, with this letter to Dan, he encloses this poem, and he writes, this is completely personal. First person singular lament. Because I am a stranger, here I find no easy truth to satisfy my mind, no bright and morning star to guide my feet up the weary gray and sullen street. Perhaps someday it shall be, who can tell? My soul shall find an exile from this hell. Perhaps someday the sky will split asunder and loose me from this paralyzing wonder. Tell me, you strangers who have gone before, what key you found to this imprisoning door? And tell me, was your universe so dark as mine is? Did you find a spark to guide you in the darkness? And striven... And gone hungry, I am afraid, that I shall die beneath the tardy sun. The truth is, I find I do not love the things that others love. I do not care for money or for houses or for prayer. I would be left alone above to, alone to suffer whatever ills the universe can offer. 
but all the world's metallic booming voice contends that I have made a silent choice. Go get a job and pay a decent salary. Um, sadly, my dear, you expect to, surely, my dear, you expect to marry. The world in all its voice on the year, my dear, my dear, my dear, my dear, my dear, surely, surely you have not forgotten your sainted father dead, your, mother cry, your mother's cry. Now you must plan for all these ill-begotten. You will outgrow this nonsense by and by. And um, this last letter is so ironic. Um, researching this, I just found so many levels of James Baldwin's work. Like That reminded me of another country. And then um, he dealt with so many issues of class and race and sexuality all through his writing. And this was a letter that came from... Um, Business and Society Review, um, and these people deal with the census. Dear Mr. Baldwin, you probably noticed the U.S. Census report, which came out a few weeks ago, showing more people in poverty than ever before. But beneath the surface, there are other things going on that seem to be unnoticed. Black family income as a percentage of white has not changed materially since 1969. Blacks are still earning about three-fifths of whites, all the touted gains of the 1960s seem to be fading. On top of this is a question of what is happening in the middle income range. Five or six years ago, there was major national publicity about the emerging new black middle class. The change was said to be revolutionary. Yet, since then, the census figures show a decline in the percentage of black earnings above the national median. Blacks are still unemployed at twice the rate of whites, still in poverty at three times the rate of whites. These forces seem immutable. On top of this are the most discouraging statistics of all, which show that education is not paying off for blacks. Blacks now almost equal whites in years of educational attainment, yet high school graduates still earn more, yet white high school graduates still earn more than black college graduates. We are asking a very small group of black leaders to comment on these statistics. What do they mean? What do they import for our country? What can blacks look forward to and hope for? We hope very much that we, ho we hope very much that we can have the value of your insights and perspective on this very difficult subject. All we require is a short statement or comment. Theodore L. Cross. And Jimmy responds. Dear Mr. Cross, I do not know how to answer your question, for it is really one question, because I have lived with it all my life. Your question indeed can be said to be my life. That life is also my father's life, for example, and includes the real expectations of my youngest nephew, who is about two years old. That, after all, is quite a span of time, and your letter contains, alas, no news. I told you what you are now telling me, and the black presence in this country has been telling you this for generation upon generation. The country did not want to hear it and still does not want to hear it. The essential principle of our country, however impolite I might, I might sound, is that it is a white country, which means that blacks are essentially the wards of the nation and must take what is left over. In times of seeming plenty, blacks seem to prosper, not quite at the white level, of course, but nevertheless sufficiently to reassure the nation that the nation is able to honor the national ideals when times are rough as they are now, the nation, and quite shamelessly, drops this pretense. There is no way to cut the pie to feed the white people, and the nigger is left where he always was, the last to be hired, the first to be fired. 
It does not surprise me that white high school graduates earn more than black college graduates, nor can I imagine why it surprises you. It is simply because they are white. Do not misunderstand me. I do not wish to sound vindictive, and indeed, I do not think that I am. But I can perhaps be forgiven if I sound a little weary. I have nothing, for example, against Barbara Streisand or Bing Crosby, but I do know that they have made far more money than either Billie Holiday or Duke Ellington, and we know this disparity does not come about because of their relative gifts. <laughs> As for education, it is you who must ask yourself what it is you who must ask yourself what the education is designed to achieve. I submit that it is impossible to hope to educate anyone whose experience you despise or fear. A real teacher knows that he must learn from his students. That is the only way that we can teach each other. If you do not dare hear the student, then the student cannot hear you, and you can teach him nothing. The student may not wish to hear what you think you know about his mother, who, in general reality, works for you, for that is what is really in the center of the student's mind when you attempt to educate him into the standards of the present society. He may not know what you assure him he knows, you, what you assure him you know, but he knows what you do not know. You do not know anything about him or his mother. You have no respect for his experience. Furthermore, he knows far better than you how hard it will be for him to find a job. He may see better than you think he does the price you pay for yours, and he may not wish to betray what he knows he knows for something that he knows you can scarcely hear. Put your question another way, my friend. Now what can blacks look forward to? Not what can blacks look forward to and hope for. What can you look forward to and hope for? Lord, yes, we need each other, all of us. But all the American institutions are in the hands of people who dream of themselves as white, and me, therefore, as black. And I know far more about you than you have ever dared to confront in me. Thank you. Carol Mazo has written four novels, including Ghost Dance, The Art Lover, Ava, and The American Woman in the Chinese Hat, which was, which was published last, May, last month by Dalkey Archive Press. She teaches in the writing program at Columbia and received a Lannan Fellowship for Fiction in 1993. Carol will read from the letters of Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein wrote a great deal, actually, about the delights of sex with Alice Toklas. And um, I thought I'd read a bit of her erotic uh, lyric writing, for starters. Um, she called, uh, um, Gertrude called Alice her gay kitten, pussy, baby, queen, cherubim, cake, lobster, wifey, daisy, and her little Jew. Gertrude was king, husband, hubby, Mount Fatty, 
and Fatuski. <laughs> she penned her love for Alice. She is very necessary to me. My sweetie, she is all to me. This is about 1913. I marvel at my baby. I marvel at her beauty. I marvel at her perfection. I marvel at her purity. I marvel at her tenderness. I marvel at her charm. I marvel at her vanity. I marvel at her industry. I marvel at her humor. I marvel at her intelligence. I marvel at her rapidity. I marvel at her brilliance. I marvel at her sweetness. I marvel at her delicacy. I marvel at her generosity. I marvel at her cow. <laughs> Cows, it seems, in the Steinian lexicon um, are orgasms. <laughs> And Gertrude, in her bedroom pieces, uh, makes repeated uh, reference to cows and also to Caesars, which seem to have something to do with cows. <laughs> cows are very nice. They are between legs, wrote Gertrude. Cows made both Gertrude and Alice very pleased. 1913 as well. A cow has come. He is pleased, and she is content as a cow, came and went. And now a little scene with a queen contented by the cow, which has come and been sent and been seen, a dear, dearest queen. All of us worship a cow. How? By introducing and producing and extension. How? You know about pipes. A shepherd has pipes, so he has, and so have I. I do mention this and that. It is true of a pussy and a cat that this is that and that is this, and you are sleepy with a kiss. Who miss? Us. Why misses us? Who dismisses us? We kiss us very well. She is very well. And as to cow, which is mentioned anyhow, a cow is mentioned anyhow. Thank you, Romans, Caesars, and all. <laughs> I say it to you, and I say it to you, I say it to you how I love my little Jew. I say it to you, and I say it to you, I say it to you, and I say it to you. How can I have the air of here and there, and I say it to you, I say it to you, I love my own little Jew. How can I have the air, and I do care, and I care for her hair, and there for the rest of her too, my little Jew. I love her, her too, my little Jew, and she will have endured the cold that is cured, it is cured, it is cured, and a cow... How can a cow follow now? <laughs> a cow can follow now because I have a cow. I had a cow, you have a cow, you have a cow, we have a cow now. <laughs> she is that kind of wife. <laughs> she can see. And a credit to me. And a credit to me, she is sleepily a credit to me. And what do I credit, credit her with? I credit her with a cow and a kiss. Um, 
This is from a 50-page lyric that Gertrude wrote on cows and kisses and stickiness and preferred positions called Lifting Belly. It's a terrific piece. You should read the whole thing. I am fondest of all of Lifting Belly. Lifting Belly is in bed, and the bed has been made comfortable. Lifting Belly so high and aiming exactly and making a cow come out. <laughs> I say lifting belly and then I say lifting belly and Caesars. I say lifting belly gently and Caesars gently. I say lifting belly again and Caesars again. I say lifting belly and I say Caesars and I say belly, Caesars, and cow come out. I say lifting bellies and Caesars and cow, cow, cow come out. Lifting belly high. That is what I adore always more and more. Come out, cow. This is from a little bit later in that same piece. You will give me orders and you will not. You will tell me what you prefer. You will ask for me what you want. I see what you wish. You need to have an instant obedience and you shall have it. I will never question. Your lightest wish shall be my law. If you want to be respectable, address me as sir. I am very fond of yes, sir. <laughs> Here's um, Gertrude talking about her own writing, this bizarre and fabulous um, life's work. I have destroyed sentences and rhythms and literary overtones and all the rest of that nonsense to get to the very core of this problem of the communication of intuition. If the communication is perfect, the words have life, and that is all there is to good writing. Putting down on the paper words which dance and weep and make love and fight and kiss and perform miracles. Alice, meantime, is um, in the kitchen performing her own kind of miracles and um, also committing crimes. I'm going to read a little bit from the Alice B. Toklas cookbook in which she talks about her kitchen um, experiences. The only way to learn to cook is to cook. And for me, as for so many others, it suddenly and unexpectedly became a disagreeable necessity to have to do it when war came and occupation followed. It was in those conditions of rationing and shortage that I learned not only to cook seriously, but to buy food in a restricted district and not to take too much time in doing it, since there were so many more important and more amusing things to do. It was at this time, then, that murder in the kitchen began. The first victim was a lively carp brought to the kitchen in a covered basket from which nothing could escape. The fishman who sold me the carp said he had no time to kill, scale, or clean it, nor would he tell me with which of these horrible necessities one began. 
it wasn't difficult to know which was the most repellent. So quickly to the murder and have it over with. On the docks of Puget Sound, I had seen fishermen grasp the tail of a huge salmon and lifting it high, bring it down on the dock with enough force to kill it. Obviously, I was not a fisherman, nor was the kitchen table a dock. Should I not dispatch my first victim with a blow on the head from a heavy mallet? After an appraising glance at the lively fish, it was evident he would escape attempts aimed at his head. (laughs) A heavy, sharp knife came to my mind as the classic, the perfect choice. So grasping with my left hand, well covered with a dishcloth, for the teeth might be sharp, the lower jaw of the carp, and the knife in my right, I carefully, deliberately found the base of its vertebral column and plunged the knife in. I let go my grasp and looked to see what had happened. Horror of horrors, the carp was dead, killed, assassinated, murdered in the first, second, and third degree. (laughs) Limp, I fell into a chair. (laughs) With my hands still unwashed, reached for a cigarette. lighted it, and waited for the police to come and take me into custody. (laughs) After a second cigarette, my courage returned, and I went to prepare poor Mr. Carp for the table. I scraped off the scales, cut off the fins, cut open the underside, and emptied out a great deal of what I did not care to look at. (laughs) Thoroughly washed and dried the fish and put it aside while I prepared carp stuffed with chestnuts. Then you have the recipe. (laughs) One more crime. (laughs) It was in the market of Palma de Mallorca that our French cook tried to teach me to murder by smothering. There is no reason why this crime should have been committed publicly or that I should have been expected to participate. Jean was just showing off. When the crowd of market women who had gathered about her began screaming and gesticulating, I retreated. When we met later to drive back in the carryall filled with our marketing to Torino, where we had a villa, I refused to sympathize with Jean. She said that the Mallorcans were bloodthirsty. Didn't they go to bullfights and pay an advance price for the meat of the beasts they had seen killed in the ring? Didn't they prefer to chop off the heads of innocent pigeons instead of humanely smothering them, which was the way to prevent all fowl from bleeding to death and so make them fuller and tastier? Had she not tried to explain this to them, to teach them, to show them how an intelligent, humane person went about killing pigeons, but no, they didn't want to learn. They preferred their own brutal ways. At lunch, when she served the pigeon, Jean discreetly said nothing. Discussing food, which she enjoyed above everything, had been discouraged at table. But her fine black eyes were eloquent. In the small-sized pigeons the island produced had not achieved jumbo size. Squabs they unquestionably were, and larger and more succulent squabs than those we had eaten at the excellent restaurant at Palma. Later we went back to Paris, and then there was a war, and after a lifetime there was peace. One day, passing the concierge loge, he called me and said he had something someone had left for us. He said he would bring it to me, which he did, and which I wish he hadn't when I saw what it was. A crate of six white pigeons, and a note from a friend saying she had nothing better to offer us from her home in the country, ending with, but as Alice is clever, she will make something delicious of them. 
it is certainly a mistake to allow a reputation for cleverness to be born and spread by loving friends. <laughs> it is so cheaply acquired and so dearly paid for. Six white pigeons to be smothered, to be plucked, to be cleaned, and all this to be accomplished before Gertrude Stein returned, for she didn't like to see work being done. <laughs> if only I had the courage, the two hours before her return would easily suffice. A large cup of strong black coffee would help. This was before a lovely Brazilian told me that in her country, a large cup of black coffee was always served before going to bed to ensure a good night's rest. Not yet having acquired this knowledge, the black coffee made me lively and courageous. <laughs> I carefully found the spot on poor, innocent dove's throat, where I was to press and pressed. The realization had never come to me before that one saw with one's fingertips as well as with one's eyes. It was a most unpleasant experience, though as I laid out one by one the sweet young corpses, there was no denying one could become accustomed to murdering. <laughs> so I plucked the pigeons, emptied them, and was ready to cook braised pigeons au crouton. <laughs> Um, as you know, Gertrude and Alice um, had many uh, uh, famous and interesting friends. The aforementioned Paul Bowles shows up now at, um, at uh, the house. This is about 1930. And um, one afternoon, Paul asks Gertrude to look at some of his poems. And she reads them carefully, thinks, and then says... Well, the only trouble with all this is that it isn't poetry. What is it, asked Bowles. How should I know what it is? You wrote it. <laughs> you tell me what it is. It's not poetry. Look at this. What do you mean, the heated beetle pants? Beetles don't pant. Basket, their dog. Basket pants, don't you, basket? But beetles don't. And here you've got purple clouds, it's false. It was written without conscious intervention, Bowles told her. It's not my fault. I didn't know what I was writing. Yes, yes, but you knew afterwards what you'd written. <laughs> and you should have known it was false. It was false, and you sent it off to transition anyway. Guess I know they published it. Unfortunately, because it's not poetry. <laughs> Gertrude and Alice surrounded themselves with, um, as they say, homosexuals of all sorts all the time. And um, this is something she said about, Heming uh, about Hemingway to one of her uh, young male fr friends who was uh, hanging around. They do all the good things in the arts, and when I ran down the male ones, meaning homosexuals, to Hemingway, it was because I thought he was a secret one. I like all people who produce, and Alice does too, and what they do in bed is their own business, and what we do, and what we do is not theirs. Yet I'm drawn back to the erotic lyric to end, and <laughs> I'm going to I found one more here.
I think this speaks to Gertrude's desire, as difficult as she may seem or as strange, her desire to express the rhythms of the visible and the sensual world. Pillow, I meant to say. Saturday, not polite. Do satisfy me. This is to say that baby is all well, that baby is baby, that baby is all well, that there is a piano, that baby is all well, that there is a piano, that baby is all well. This is to say that baby is all well. This is to say that baby come in. Splashes, splashes of jelly, splashes, jelly. Tiny dish of delicious, which is my wife and all, a perfect ball. Kiss me, kiss me. I'll let you kiss me. Sticky. Thank you. Edward Albee has written 24 plays, including The Zoo Story, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, A Delicate Balance, Counting the Ways, and Three Tall Women. He's won a Tony, an Obie, and three Pulitzer Prizes, three among others. He is U.S. President of the International Theater Institute and President of the Edward P. Albee, Albee Foundation, Pardon, and um, we'll be reading from the letters of Tennessee Williams. When I was invited to be part of this evening to read from Tennessee's correspondence, a couple of things bothered me for a moment. Uh, The timing of this evening, that was most important. Would it interfere with the gay wrestling, for example? Uh, Not that I I was going to wrestle, you understand, but I, I wanted to be able to go. I discovered it did not interfere with the gay wrestling. Uh, And secondly, in what voice should I read uh, Tennessee's correspondence? My own or Tennessee's? Tennessee's voice was so extraordinary that uh, I was tempted to use his voice. For example, let me invent something and, and imitate Tennessee's real voice. I ran into little Truman last night. Still little, wider, but little. The hands still fluttering, but I noticed with the flutter a kind of shake. Ah, well, time passes. But I decided I shouldn't do that. I decided I should read uh, and let you listen to Tennessee without the interference of an imitation. Uh, Tennessee wrote a great number of letters and quite often in his letters 
he would include a chunk of prose, which sometimes occurred uh, in his memoirs, a, a book which many of us who knew him reasonably well thought should have been called Things That Ought to Be True. <laughs> and sometimes these chunks of prose did not uh, take place uh, in his memoirs. In one of the letters that he wrote to uh, Maria Saint-Just, uh, he included a chunk of prose called Some Memoirs of a Con Man. Let me read from it. It was in um, 1971 that he wrote this. I was informed this past spring by a prominent denizen of the jungles of Academe that I have in recent years turned into what he calls a public figure, a creature which he meant as distinct from a creative writer still at work. I'm not happy about the allegation, and I cry out against it. I'm about to have installed in my Key West studio for the benefit of the critic, and also, if possible, at his expense, a closed-circuit TV camera, which will show me living and working seven mornings a week under a skylight the length of my long work table with two typewriters, one of them electric for those ineffable mornings when the touch is still quick and sure and one, and one, well, the nice, familiar old blue Olivetti portable that goes about the world with me, a machine more inclined to pauses than in its youth, but still knocking out several pages whenever I choose it. A year ago last spring, an ostensibly respectable journalist who came on much like a gentleman with excellent credentials invaded my hometown, Key West, at a time when I was only a few months out of a psychiatric ward in which I had suffered a couple of coronaries and three brain convulsions in the course of one apocalyptic morning, but which... When I was invited to be part of this evening to read from Tennessee's correspondence, a couple of things bothered me for a moment. Uh, the timing of this evening, that was most important. Would it interfere with the gay wrestling, for example? Uh, not that I, I was going to wrestle, you understand, but I, I wanted to be able to go. I discovered it did not interfere with the gay wrestling. Uh, and secondly, in what voice should I read uh, Tennessee's correspondence? My own or Tennessee's? Tennessee's voice was so extraordinary that uh, I was tempted to use his voice. For example, let me oh, invent something and, and imitate Tennessee's real voice. I ran into little Truman last night. Still little, wider, but little. The hands still fluttering, but I noticed with the flutter a kind of shake. Ah, well, time passes. But I decided I shouldn't do that. I decided I should read uh, and let you listen to Tennessee without the interference of an imitation. Uh, Tennessee wrote a great number of letters, and 
quite often in his letters, he would include a chunk of prose, which sometimes occurred uh, in his memoirs, a, a book which many of us who knew him reasonably well thought should have been called Things That Ought to Be True. <laughs> and sometimes these chunks of prose did not uh, take place uh, in his memoirs. In one of the letters that he wrote to uh, Maria Saint-Just, uh, he included a chunk of prose called Some Memoirs of a Con Man. Let me read from it. It was in um, 1971 that he wrote this. I was informed this past spring by a prominent denizen of the jungles of academe that I have in recent years turned into what he calls a public figure, a creature which he meant as distinct from a creative writer still at work. I'm not happy about the allegation, and I cry out against it. I'm about to have installed in my Key West studio for the benefit of the critic and also, if possible, at his expense, a closed-circuit TV camera which will show me living and working seven mornings a week under a skylight the length of my long work table with two typewriters, one of them electric for those ineffable mornings when the touch is still quick and sure and one, and one, well, the nice, familiar old blue Olivetti portable that goes about the world with me, a machine more inclined to pauses than in its youth, but still knocking out several pages whenever I choose it. A year ago last spring, an ostensibly respectable journalist who came on much like a gentleman with excellent credentials invaded my hometown, Key West, at a time when I was only a few months out of a psychiatric ward in which I had suffered a couple of coronaries and three brain convulsions in the course of one apocalyptic morning but which, being a crocodile, I managed to survive. Go-betweens told me that he was a sincere admirer of my work and wished to write a serious critique, and so I arranged to meet him at the apartment of one of those go-betweens. Only those who have the experience of breakdown and consequent confinement can understand fully how much you want, when you have been released, to spill your guts to anybody who can or will listen to you. The subject got around to precocious sexuality. This I do remember quite clearly. We were talking about the extravagancies of the early adolescent experience in sex. In the context of this discussion, I told a story of how long ago I had experienced an instant orgasm when I circled the bare shoulders of a childhood sweetheart with my bare arm on the dark upper deck of a Mississippi excursion steamer. This anecdote did not get through to the concealed tape recorder. Perhaps the apparatus was too small for accuracy. At any rate, what was reported was that I had an orgasm when a college roommate scratched my back. <laughs> this college roommate was undoubtedly included in the general discussion on adolescent sexuality. I was indeed, at 18, quite infatuated with a college roommate who had very large and luminous green eyes but certainly this was a mostly sublimated attachment and never did it go to the point of instant orgasm. Still, what if it had? Would it have been so remarkably different from the adolescent experience of many boys then and now? No, 
but it made good copy, and so it was played up for exactly that, good, tasteless copy, for which I've such a penchant, or is the word panache. However, I didn't mind much mind this stuff about my early love life, distinguished for its inhibitions, variabilities, and intensities, all three, and with hardly a moment that I can honestly say I regret. What I did mind was the word portrait of a vulgarian, a man who boasted of imaginary riches, who spoke scathingly of an eminent actress for publication, and most dreadfully of all, a man who had abandoned his dearest friend on that friend's deathbed, and a man who had cut off his 88-year-old mother from his last will and testament, condemning her by implication to the poorhouse. Well, it so happens that I was in constant attendance during the agonizing end of my dearest friend's life, and it so happened that my mother, having received half of my father's not inconsiderable savings and half of my biggest financial success, the glass menagerie, was, had never been mentioned in my will, since Miss Edwina is not only a lady, but a lady of considerable means as well, as well as an indomitable spirit. What has annoyed me most about the various published inaccuracies on the subject of, of that stranger who bears my professional name is the propagation of a certain myth, which is the myth that during my lean years, which were all of my years from late childhood until the mid-30s of my way through life, I was the pampered creature of subsidies, grants, and gratuities. Once, for the first and last time in my life, for example, I made a direct appeal for personal and economic assistance. A phone call was made to the dramatist branch of a union devoted to the care and feeding of writers. I dare say this was the Dramatist Guild. I was loaned, yes, loaned, the sum of precisely $10 to keep me off the slippery streets until the spring thaw had set in a season later. A dear friend of mine once remarked, the wealthy have such a touching faith in the efficacy of small sums. <laughs> but in my own adult fashion, I am rather ingenious as well as ingenuous creature. And in those days, I, I had a certain pathetic appeal to certain individuals. And when the $10 were exhausted, I dropped in for dinner at the Madison Avenue penthouse of a very successful composer of pop music. And I not only stayed for dinner, but for the next four months, <laughs> when the spring thaw did set in. Once, I was employed, employed as a squab picker on a squab ranch on the periphery of Los Angeles. This was not winter, but early spring. And although this job was not very lucrative, it had its compensations. Several times a week, a group of young fellows would gather in the killing sheds the squabs were killed by slitting their throats and holding them over a, a basket to bleed to death. I managed squeamishly to avoid this part of the business. For each squab that we picked, each of us would drop a single feather into a milk bottle bearing his name, and we were paid according to the number of feathers in our bottles. There was something wonderful wrapping among the squab pickers, and I remember never to forget a homely bit of philosophy that was voiced by one of the kids. He said, you know, if you stand on one corner on this coast long enough, a goddamn seagull 
is going to fly over you sooner or later and shit a pot of gold on you. I have quoted this line a couple of times, once in a play and once in a film, but I have yet to hear it delivered from the stage or screen. But I still think it's a lovely line. Last spring, my publishers informed me that the coming fall they were going to begin publication of a series of volumes to be called My Collected Works. I was filled with alarm at this news, which I received the day before sailing for Europe. I got at once on the phone. The publishers were not in, but I reached a secretary and I said, I hear you are about to publish my collected works, and I think you should know my works are not collected that a good many of them are distributed among trunks and boxes in warehouses, in the archives of university libraries, and in the filing cases and closets of my home in Key West. So it will be years before you can publish anything that can honestly be called my collected works. So if you want to bring out a collection of my produced and published plays, please do, that's fine, since most of my work is now out of print in many parts of the world, owing to your troubles with distribution. Now, for these proposed volumes, if you want an omnibus title, I suggest you call them The Pigeon Drop. <laughs> what is The Pigeon Drop? asked the secretary. The Pigeon Drop, I told her, is one of the oldest confidence games. It's a game in which somebody fills out an envelope with waste paper, picks out a half-witted mark, and tells this mark that the envelope is full of paper money, and that if this, this mark would like half of it, he should go run to his bank and draw out such and such sum of the green stuff and put it in a large envelope, hand it over to the con men and receive in turn an envelope containing half of the green stuff in the pigeon dropper's envelope. This sounds like a preposterous trick to get away with, but it was revived successfully in the French quarter of New Orleans a few months ago. These two very sharp young ladies had observed an older lady who was not so sharp and they approached her with the pigeon drop, the envelope filled with waste paper, and gave her the pitch about having found this envelope full of $100 bills. And they really and truly did persuade the old creature to trot over to her bank and draw out her life savings and put them in an envelope, which she exchanged for the pigeon drop. Well, the secretary was not amused. Neither were the publishers. When I was one day out at sea, I was summoned from the dinner table by a phone call from the shore. It was my publishers assuring me that they would discard the alarming title, Collected Works, but that they were not going to substitute the pigeon drop for it. <laughs> they said that they really did not consider me to be a literary con merchant and that they proposed to publish my plays under the title, The Theater of Tennessee Williams. I told them that I did not care for that title either, but that I preferred it to the collected works of. Any suggestions for alternative titles are welcome. Several of my traveling companions think I ought to stick to the pigeon drop, but I wonder if that degree of self-deprecation is wise. I suspect that too many people might agree with it. Thank you.
Our final reader of the evening is Sapphire. Sapphire has published poetry in High Risk Two, City Lights Review, The Portable Lower East Side, and Outweek. Her novel, American Dreams, was published in February of 1993 by High Risk. She's read it outright, the public theater, and other venues, and tonight she's going to be reading from Audre Lorde, Sapphire. Well, we couldn't get um, Audrey's family to release the letters, so you know they must be hot. <laughs> so I'm going to uh, read an excerpt from an interview she did in 1983 with Sojourner magazine, and she's talking about her book, um, Zombie. And they ask her, what prompted the writing of Zombie? A number of things, Audrey says. I went to a modern language association meeting a long time ago and met a young woman, Barbara Smith, as a matter of fact, stood up before the general forum. I did not know her at the time. I saw this really beautiful young black woman standing up brave and alone in front of a whole auditorium of people and saying, I'm a black lesbian feminist literary critic wondering whether I can be that and live to tell the story. I was so taken with her beauty and her bravery. I was also thinking, well, there are some stories you just have to tell. Obviously, this young woman doesn't know that yet. Yes, you can be a black, lesbian, feminist, anything, and live to tell the story. And I'm going to read an excerpt from her, Audrey's story. She's downtown in the, uh, in the village, and uh, she's at a bar, and they're dancing. And I'm gonna, we're going to enter there. Finally, we didn't start back to the bar at all between dances, but just stood on the floor waiting for the next record, dancing only with each other. A little after midnight, in silent and mutual decision, we split the page bar together, walking blocks toward, through the West Village to Hudson Street, where her car was parked. She had invited me up to her house for a drink. Crossing 59th Street, I had an acute moment of panic. Who was this woman? Suppose she really intended only to give me a drink. <laughs> uh, in an uninflected, almost formal voice, formal voice that perfectly matched and thereby uh, erased all question marks, she asked, can you spend the night? I steadied myself enough to say in my very best Lower East Side casual voice, I'd really like to. And they're in the apartment now. And uh, I don't know how they, they managed to do this, but somehow they uh, stop at a... a uh, I guess a bodega, and get some green plantains. So here we are with Audrey uh, and this woman and green plantains. There were green plantains, which we half peeled and then planted fruit deep in each other's bodies until the petals of skin lay like tendrils of broad green fire upon the curly darkness between our upspread thighs. There were red ripe finger bananas, stubby and sweet, which I parted your lips gently to insert the peeled fruit into your great purple flower. I held you, lay between your brown legs, slowly playing my tongue through your familiar forests, 
slowly licking and swallowing as the deep undulations and tidal motions of your strong body slowly mashed ripe banana into a beige cream that mixed with the juices of your electric flesh. Our bodies met again, each surface touched with each other's flame from the tips of our curled toes to our tongue. And locked into our own wild rhythms, we drove each other across the thundering space, dripped like light from the peak of each other's tongue. We were each of us both together, then we were apart. Okay, I'm going to go back to the... Um to the interview right now, and Audrey is again talking about constructing the book. And she says, I try to un uncover how we ourselves move day to day, and in doing that, I had to go back and look inside myself for what sources of energy and strength have always been there. One of the threads that holds through is loving, the love of women. And back to Zami, I took a ripe avocado and rolled it between my hands until the skin became a green case for the soft mashed fruit inside. I rose from a kiss in your mouth to nibble a hole in the fruit skin near the navel stalk, squeezed the pale yellow green fruit in thin ritual lines back and forth over your coconut brown body. The oil and sweat from our bodies kept the fruit liquid, and I massaged it over your thighs and between your breasts until your brownness shone like a light through a veil of the palest green avocado, a mantle of goddess pear that I slowly licked from your skin. Then we would have to get up and gather the pits and fruit and skins and put them out for the garbage men, because if we left them near the bed for any length of time, then out would come the hordes of cockroaches that always waited on the sidelines within the halls of Harlem apartments. Okay. And this is another um, piece from... Uh, the, the interview where the, uh, the woman, Gay Williams, the interviewer, is talking to Audrey about her, her work and how she's been able to uh, continue, continually produce work uh, despite having cancer and being poor and being black and being a lesbian. Where does the stamina to do what, do what you do come from? So many people just do not make it to say what they need to have said. How do you cope with the feelings that it brings up? Gay, that's the woman's name, I have been so lucky in my life. I am a tribute to all the women, all of the people who have been a part of me. I have been so lucky with my family and my lovers and my friends. I have been able to pour libation for Jenny, my friend who died, and others like her who did not make it, because it was an accident of Afriquete's breathing that I did. And that is another reason, reason why I have to use where I am and who I am, because if I don't, what was the point of my being here and Jenny's not? What was the point of Muff falling off the bar stool and dying in the pony stable bar? If I have survived, I have a responsibility to examine the terms of why and to do it as honestly as I can. I'm going to end with a poem from her book, The Black Unicorn, called A Litany for Survival. For those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone, 
For those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways coming and going in the hours between dawns, looking inward and outward at once before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures like bread in our children's mouths so their dreams will not reflect the death in ours. For those of us who were imprinted with fear like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, learning to be afraid with our mother's milk, for by this weapon, this illusion of some safety to be found, the heavy-footed hope to silence us, for all of us, this instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. And when the sun rises, we are afraid it might not remain. When the sun sets, we are afraid it might not rise in the morning. When our stomachs are full, we are afraid of indigestion. When our stomachs are empty, we are afraid we may never eat again. When we are loved, we are afraid love will vanish. When we are alone, we are afraid love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcome. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak remembering we were never meant to survive. Thank you all very, very much for being here. Special thanks to the New School Lynn Winters, all the volunteers and staff at Penn, uh, Michael Cunningham, and all of our readers. Have a good night. Thank you.